And his opponent across the ring, fighting out of the red corner, really needing no introduction the world over, wearing blue trunks with white and red trim, widely recognized as one of boxing's all-time greatest. Please welcome the fighting congressman and boxing's pride of the Philippines, introducing the one and only Manny Pac-Man very special edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. With my co-host Eric Raskin, I am Kira Mulvaney, and this is part two of a two-part look back at the career of all-time great and future first ballot Hall of Famer, Manny Pacquiao. In part one, we followed Pacquiao's meteoric transformation from boxer to champion to superstar, from his US debut against Leilo Lodwaba to his historic defeat of Oscar De La Hoya. And in this episode, we cover the years from 2009 until his final win, against Keith Thurman in 2019. And we begin with his first post-De La Hoya outing at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas on May 2nd, 2009. His opponent was 140-pound champ Ricky Hatton, whose only defeat to this point had come in 2007 at 147 pounds against Floyd Mayweather. As Gareth A. Davies of The Telegraph recalls, the promotion kicked off with an entertaining tour of Hatton's native UK, but there were dark clouds on the horizon for the Englishman, who proved no match for the Filipino and was flattened by a devastating knockout in the second round. Manny Pacquiao came over to the UK. He came over, he took a train up to Manchester, he stayed in London, just a couple of hundred meters from Buckingham Palace. We know that he's a massive, um, massive aficionado of Queen Elizabeth II of England and of course name one of his children after her and I remember interviewing him on Park Lane and him saying where does the Queen live? I said it's a two-minute walk down the road and he honestly said can we go down and knock on the door because I want to have tea with her but I remember getting on a train going up to Manchester with uh, Bob Arum and Richard Schaefer at the time Manny in the carriage with all his entourage and for some reason he was saying Scottish lines, yeah? I'm fighting for my freedom. He went up to Manchester. We had a massive press conference up there. He played darts against Ricky Hatton. I'm pretty sure that Ricky Hatton won at darts. He's a pub guy, his mum and dad ran a pub. And, and I think Pacquiao said afterwards, darts is the only thing he's gonna beat me at. It was a brilliant tour. Everybody was thoroughly excited. And then of course, he went back to train in Los Angeles and Ricky Hatton trained in Manchester for a while and then went over 
to Las Vegas. It was all set for the big build-up. I went to Los Angeles, round the wildcard gym, to visit Manny Pacquiao, those bulging calves, that muscularity of his, that kind of, that tensile strength he's always had, the fast hands in the sparring, on the pads with Freddie Roach. I remember going to his flat in Los Angeles, there were 50 people in this large apartment. People cooking, people playing music, people singing. Oh my God, it was unbelievable, all his security there. I went to see Ricky Hatton on my own. I went to see him in his apartment in Las Vegas, but there was something somber about him. He was halfway through a long camp in Nevada. He talked up the fight, his sparring, but there was a lack of buzz about him. Um, there was a total contrast with Manny Pacquiao. So I had this, just the memory of Ricky Hatton not looking happy, um, drained from camp, and yet going to the wildcard gym and seeing this blur of fists about Manny Pacquiao. It was a month before the fight. And, you know, in the quadrangle below, hundreds of Filipinos uh, were gathered around him. He was a fighting machine at this point. This was the pomp of his career. Oscar De La Hoya, Ricky Hatton, and then Miguel Cotto. I think that is the halcyon year and a half in his career. And Ricky Hatton, unfortunately, came in the middle of it. When it came to the fight itself, it was as if Hatton was a statue. And it was another destructive blur from the Filipino. Um, there was no sign of the Hatton who destroyed and defeated Costa Zhu four years earlier, or even the Briton who had challenged Floyd Mayweather late in 2008. Three knockdowns, six minutes work, one cut on his face from a Hatton elbow, job done. Hatton wasn't at his best, but he ran into Pacquiao in the most purple patch, if I can put it that way, of this incredibly decorated career. Um, he's, he, he's a phenomenon, and I think Ricky, I don't think, came to see us the next day. He wasn't feeling well enough to meet the British media after the fight. Um, and there were complaints from some of the British media guys there that we'd come all the way to Vegas and we didn't get to see him afterwards. And as we know, Ricky Hatton wasn't the same afterwards. He never rediscovered that bullishness, that, that, that kind of ruggedness that he had. And he has said since that he now does not allow anyone that trains under him, or even his son, of course, Campbell Hatton, who's now boxing, to live the life he lived between fights, which was to drink, to balloon up in weight, and not live the life. So he wasn't always ready when he went into camp. He was losing weight in camp. And I think it finally caught up with him in the fight against Manny Pacquiao. Manny Pacquiao is a very special fighter. Well, who else do we know who walks to the ring smiling, praying upwards, almost as if he's got a, a look of glee on his face? And of course, not long after this, Manny Pacquiao took to politics. And I think it was the, these were the last couple of fights that we're mentioning here. Oscar De La Hoya, Ricky Hatton, Miguel Cotto, before Manny Pacquiao seriously started thinking about changing the lives of so many people. And I think it's a bit like, I, I recall speaking to George Foreman about fighting Muhammad Ali in the Rumble in the Jungle. He said it was weird defending the world title to Muhammad Ali because you had the sense that you weren't defending the belt, you were fighting Muhammad Ali. And I think Ricky Hatton had that feeling when he stepped in against Manny Pacquiao. He wasn't defending his belt, he was fighting Manny Pacquiao. And a Manny Pacquiao who 
was an indestructible force, who was an immovable object. And he just didn't have it anymore. The very best Ricky Hatton from four years earlier maybe would have put up an amazing fight against Manny Pacquiao, but I don't think he would have beaten him. Few people had a better view of, or closer involvement in, the career of Manny Pacquiao than Fred Sternberg, who was his publicist from 2005 until his final fight in 2021. He was at the fighter's side as Pacquiao's popularity soared to the point that before his November 14th, 2009 clash with Miguel Cotto, he was becoming as well known for singing Sometimes When We Touch on late night TV as for his boxing. But Pacquiao's focus and that of trainer Freddie Roach remained fixated on his work inside the ring. And prior to what they expected to be a fierce battle with Cotto, which would end with Pacquiao winning by 12th round stoppage, they trained as hard as they had ever done. We knew this was a really tough fight. And I, I, I think in terms of training, I don't think I ever saw him train any harder than for this fight. I mean, this is when he was still going three, four hours in the ring. And uh, Freddie would always, <laughs> Freddie's the only trainer I've ever seen where he had to make a fighter stop training each day. And uh, they were focused, they, they knew what they wanted to do. They knew it was a tough fight and it wasn't, it was a tough fight. Despite the scores and the result, it was a tough fight. And Manny still has the cauliflower ear to show for it. Odo had been so dominant for most of that decade. I mean, you saw him on HBO probably twice, three times a year in really good fights. Um, you know, when he fought Shane Mosley at the Garden, they opened up every seat they had in the rafters to, to accommodate. I mean, so this guy really had a following. Look, Manny is a student of the game. So is Freddie. And they, they just knew this guy was the goods. You can't, you know, you can't screw around. You, 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 if you're taking this fight, you better be ready. And Manny was, you know, he knew. You know, he watched uh, a little bit of the tapes and there, he knew this guy uh, was a very good and dangerous fighter. I think that's what motivated him. Plus, you know, it was a legitimate welterweight title at that point, a lot at stake. You know, that, that, that was then the record seventh uh, weight division world title. Even. I mean, De La Hoya opened up the floodgates. Hatton was the cherry on top of the Sunday because of all that he brought in terms of popularity and a whole nother uh, population from the UK. And so now it's like this, he is such an international star and he's such a national phenomenon and people just can't get enough. So as we approach Kodo, all of a sudden, uh, 60 Minutes is following him around. And the, the episode that comes out, I guess it was in 2009, is uh, he's on 60 Minutes, and the only other feature that night was Obama's first time, you know, first time as president on 60 Minutes. And it's like, oh my God. And as we get closer to the fight, he's on the cover of Time Magazine, and we blew up the cover in the press room. I have a photo at home where, uh, you know, we're posing against it, because I'm like, you know, with a big that big mock-up in the press room, I'm thinking, I'll never get this again. A Time Magazine cover. <laughs> and then, Jimmy Kimmel. You know, this guy, uh, uh, the sports booker, booker guest booker, um, John Carlin, really went to bat for Manny. He had been following him for years. Jimmy was not sold on this. He was like, oh, this is gonna be a disaster. And, um, all of a sudden, there's Manny singing, and uh, he's doing the Dan Hill song, and you can see the look of relief in uh, Kimmel's face. The interview had gone well, 
Benny's singing and, and the place is going bananas. It was it was like the Beatles. And that started the first of nine appearances of Jimmy Kimmel Live because he became such a great guest. It, he was just having fun. There was nothing stopping him. I mean, my God, he was top of the world. And then he opened up the uh, Cowboy Stadium, you know, with Clotty. You know, you think about all these things that he did and he was, you know, we all talk about, ah, got the home field advantage. Manny fought away from home almost his entire career. You know, the U.S. may have been a second home, but it wasn't home. And uh, then he opens up Macau. And I think if you look at a lot of the stuff that he's done, I mean, it's even more unbelievable. This guy just had a remarkable career. That fight, the Kodo fight, though, I think probably was the apex. The Kodo win would prove to be something of a high watermark in Pacquiao's career, and the last knockout he would score until 2018. Two fights later, he stepped up to junior middleweight to face Antonio Margarito, and although he won decisively, he suffered significant punishment and was arguably never quite the same fighter again. He would spend the rest of his career at welterweight, and after wins over Shane Mosley and Juan Manuel Marquez, he faced unbeaten American Tim Bradley on June 9, 2012. When the bell rang at the end of the final round, most ringside observers felt Pacquiao had won. The judges, however, scored it as a split-decision victory for Bradley, a result that Pacquiao would later avenge twice. Here, Bradley's trainer, Joel Diaz, describes the special challenges of preparing his fighter to face Pac-Man and his feelings when the fight ended. Fighting the best fighter at the moment, Manny Pacquiao, was like, uh, like hitting the jackpot, you know, like winning the lottery. It felt that once we got the opportunity, it's like the whole world's watching you. So uh, you gotta shine and you gotta prepare yourself at the best. You know, there's only one Manny Pacquiao and it's hard to find somebody to, to simulate him. And so we tried the best we could. We got a, a few lefties, uh, a few southpaws, Terrence Crawford, was coming to help and he was southpaw and never thought he would he would switch. I think I also had uh, Jose Cepeda. Jose Cepeda switched lefty as well. We had a few lefties, but when you're when you're in the eyes of the world, I mean you gotta kick it up a notch and you have to prepare yourself to another level. You have to run the extra mile, you have to spar the extra rounds. And it was just very tough. I mean just getting ready for Manny Pacquiao because we knew that it wasn't going to be an easy task. Manny Pacquiao was fast, uh, powerful, uh, explosive, everything. You know, I remember Tim Bradley telling me after the fight, coach, every time he unloaded on me, I mean, I felt the punches. He wasn't hitting me. And every time I ducked, I felt the punches like this, like if I was dodging bullets, I would hear him like, whoosh, whoosh. I would like, I would feel and hear the punches just go up uh, over me. I'll never forget in the third round, Tim Bradley was a fighter that really trained hard, very, very hard. And for him to for him to tell me that he was tired in the third round, I was like, why, why are you tired? Then later on, I realized that, that Manny Pacquiao is so elusive that he wears you out mentally. Because Manny Pacquiao is in his main prime. He's a fighter that he's in front of you and he's he's like going in and out, in and out, in and out. So you basically don't know when he's gonna attack you. He keeps you on the edge. He 
keeps you on the edge. Like when you, when somebody's gonna push you off the cliff from behind and you don't know why they're gonna do it, so you're like, is it gonna happen now or not? You know? Manny Pacquiao was like in and out, in and out, and then he would start shooting punches, and then in and out, in and out. He's always on his toes. So Bradley was like mentally drained. Not physically, it was the mental part. I told him, Tim, it's not that you didn't train right. It's just that Manny Pacquiao drains you mentally because he's always on his toes. I'm, not, I'm never gonna say we didn't win the fight, but I'm gonna tell you one thing, and this is the honest truth coming out of my heart. Going to the fight itself is like, to beat Manny Pacquiao is gonna be hard, first of all. To beat him on a decision is gonna be hard. So, I can tell you one thing, and I'm gonna tell you exactly the way it happened with me. When Tim Bradley finished the 12th round, and everybody, even people close to me, were saying that Tim Bradley was gonna get knocked out. The way Tim Bradley was gonna get knocked out, the way Ricky Hatton got knocked out, the way the way Cotto got beat up, the way Oscar De La Hoya got stopped. So everybody's like, oh, Manny, uh, Manny's gonna uh, destroy Tim Bradley. So all I can tell you is this, when that bell rings in the 12th round, I didn't care about the decision. I didn't. To me, the decision wasn't important. To me, going 12 rounds with the best fighter of the moment was a win. I consider it that way. To me, as soon as the bell rang and I jumped in the ring and I told Tim, Tim, we won. I meant like, we went 12 rounds with the best fighter in the moment. But when they gave us a decision, that was the icing on the cake, honestly. You know, I went back and watched the fight again. I watched it with no volume, and I see a lot of things, you know? I mean, if you watch it with volume, I see the commentators just basically saying, what a great left by Manny Pacquiao, and that left never landed, you know? Like, things like that, that the commentators make people see things that are not happening. But, I mean, to me it was a win that would be in history as Tim Bradley went 12 rounds with the best fighter of the era. I mean, I faced Manny Pacquiao, with Bradley, with Matisse, and believe me, Manny Pacquiao is one of the greatest fighters of all time. Very powerful on his, on, on his punches, fast on his feet, speed, smart, big heart, and he's very brave. After Pacquiao defeated Cotto, the hope was that he would then face undefeated American arch-rival Floyd Mayweather Jr. However, negotiations fell through and would continue to do so amid accusation, counter-accusation, and rancor. After several years of dashed hopes, it appeared the matchup would never come to fruition. But then, suddenly, in 2015, it all came together. And on May 2nd of that year, six years after a clash between the two had first been mooted, the two stood across from each other in the ring at the MGM Grand. Mayweather would ultimately score an uneventful unanimous decision win. Here, Showtime's Hall of Fame announcer Al Bernstein, who called the bout for the pay-per-view broadcast, assesses the fight, its build-up, and its aftermath. You know, in the last 15 or 20 years in boxing, there's always been a fight that is hard to make, and the casual sports press that covers boxing occasionally fixates on that fight as an example of boxing not making good fights. Now, at various times, boxing may have years where, oh boy, they didn't make even 
a percentage of the good fights they should have made. But there have been many years where they have made a lot of good fights that they were supposed to make. They always had that one that was, you know, high profile. Well, this one was that fight for about six years, it seemed like, or four or five years. And so it was important that it be made. And whatever the outcome, people needed to see them in the ring. In the old, old days, when I used to do the major pay-per-views like Tommy Hearns against Marvin Hagler and Duran Barkley and Leonard Duran, all those, I, you know, I was privileged to do many of those great fights in the 80s. I, and maybe it was a function of my age as well. I was in my 30s and it was the 80s, you know, enough said. Uh, so, you know, I felt always it was my place to be around everything. And I think I got a better view of, of those things then. As time has gone on, I think I've kind of retreated more into the preparation part and the, I, I've just not been as involved. I'll tell you what, for that fight, I made it my business to be at the press conferences and the weigh-in. Of course, we did a weigh-in show, uh, but at the arrivals and, and, and out and about, and I live in Las Vegas, so it was a little easier for me to be out and about that whole week. And, um, it was extraordinary, you know, it made me feel like it was for Hagler Leonard and Hagler Hearns and some of the De La Hoya fights of, uh, of his era where Las Vegas would come alive and be this uh, uh, mecca of, you know, of boxing and of uh, amazing characters that would uh, show up. You know, it turned out to be an adequate fight. I think adequate is the way people would uh, describe it. It was it was a little better than some people thought it was, but certainly not as good as people wanted. Uh, part of it may have been this injury that Pacquiao had that he didn't want to cancel the fight over. Uh, it may have impaired him a little bit. He had spots in the fight where he was effective. Round four, I remember, sticks out in my mind when I said, uh-oh, this fight could be changing and now we could have something that we thought we were going to have it was a good round. It didn't, though. It changed the, the uh, trajectory of the fight where it became this really super exciting match. It was interesting. You know, Mayweather was brilliant in uh, in his boxing. Pacquiao did his best, but it didn't generate a, a great fight. I believe that had they had the fight early and Pacquiao was fit, it would have been more of an action fight. And, and that is not to say Pacquiao definitely wins it. But I believe it would have been a more uh, active fight. He would have been a more volume puncher. I always said early on that one of the edges Pacquiao could have in a fight with Mayweather was that he is such a volume puncher that he could win rounds that way. Now, Mayweather has, has a way of turning volume punchers into less volume punchers. And that's what he did in this fight. I'm not sure he would have been able to do it as effectively had they fought, let's say, four years earlier and Pacquiao was totally fit. That isn't to say that Mayweather might not have won that fight. And what people forget about is that when, when Floyd Mayweather has to be in a firefight, he gets in a firefight and he gets it done. I think legacy-wise, I always I said this at the time, I said it on the broadcast when I was asked, what does this do to the legacy of these fighters? Does it damage, does it manage, damage Pacquiao's uh, legacy because he lost? And I said, not really, because this, you know, what he's created 
what he created back in that golden era where he was at the lighter weights fighting Marco Antonio Barrera, Juan Manuel Marquez, and Morales. Uh, you know, uh, you know, when they were creating all those great fights, they were like the four kings of the smaller weight class. That alone made a career for him that was staggering. And then all he did in the welterweight division. So I, I just, you know, I don't know that it puts those fighters in any different spot. And because they fought later on, we can't say it's a true measure of how that fight would have gone earlier. In July 2017, Pacquiao, by now a senator, traveled to Australia to face local favorite Jeff Horn and suffered a shocking and highly contentious decision loss. In the locker room after the fight, Freddie Roach advised him to retire from boxing and focus full-time on politics. But Pacquiao was not ready to hang up his gloves, and a year later scored his first knockout since 2009 when he stopped Lucas Matisse in Kuala Lumpur. Six months later, he was back in the United States, defeating Adrian Broner in Las Vegas in January 2019. As his advisor Sean Gibbons explains, the goal was to tempt Floyd Mayweather into a rematch. When that showed no signs of coming to fruition, Pacquiao's team turned their attention to undefeated welterweight belt holder Keith Thurman, whom Pacquiao would defeat via majority decision on July 20th, 2019, in what would be the last win of his Hall of Fame career. The plan was to uh, start it coming out of Malaysia, where he beat Lucas Matisse to win his last major belt. Um, coming out of that fight, you know, it was a lot of uh, looking around to see what, what the best uh, plan was to finish out the career. So luckily we ran into Mr. Al Heyman, who had a wonderful plan because the idea was coming out of that fight in Malaysia to sign with Heyman and potentially get the Mayweather fight. So basically the Broner fight was kind of a uh, introduction back to America, kind of seeing if we could whet the appetite for Floyd. And, um, you know, Floyd was at the fight, he was in the ring. We do the, we do the Broner fight. I think Manny looked a little too good. So Floyd's like, well, you know, maybe, let me, let me take another look at the man. Let me, let me figure it out. So now we're looking, you know, Manny wants to get right back in the ring. He's hot, he's coming off uh, uh, the win with Mathise, he's coming off the Broner. He had fought, you know, six months apart. So now he wants to do something in the summer. So um, I, I get the, the offer for Keith Thurman and I'm waiting, you know, I'm in, I'm in General Santos City, I'm in the Senator's hometown. Um, I arrive at his house and it's myself and his attorney, Tom Foggy. Manny's upstairs in his bedroom. And, and we just said, Senator, I need a few minutes. I gotta speak to you about this. We gotta wrap up, um, you know, your next fight. So he walks downstairs and I said, uh, I got the guy for you, uh, Keith Thurman. And to my astonishment, he says, who's Keith Thurman? I'm like, oh, Jesus, I got fuck, you know what I mean? So he's like, who's Keith Thurman? Now I'm fumbling, like, uh, uh, let, let me show you the host, Cito Lopez, he undefeated, uh, was a unified champion at one time. This is a great guy to fight, Manny, your type of style, he comes to rumble. So I take the host of Cito Lopez fight, show him a little clip of that. And, and, and people think making fights is like, it takes hours, it takes days, it takes weeks. He looked down at it, he said, huh looks good to me. That's it. No drama. No, I got to study tape. I got to see things. Because what people don't understand about the senator, he knows what he can do. He's not really concerned with who he was fighting, what they're going to do. Now we, we we leave the Philippines. It's a couple couple months before the fight. You know, you do the big press conferences in, uh, in New York. 
and Keith Thurman was better than Bob Arum, better than Don King, sensational promoter himself. I mean, the guy got up there and made jokes about man. He talked about his little T-Rex arms and and he was singing and he was rapping and it was amazing. So I forgot exactly like what man he said at the press conference. But man, he took he takes notes. He takes notes of guys. And at that moment, he literally, after the press conference, went out for a, a run, took a nice jog. Now, I think we returned, we, we did a, a couple segments in LA with you know the PVC stuff, and Keith just kept revving it up, revving it up. And if you look back at some of the footage, you'll see Manny just like the smile on his face, like, oh yeah. And the best thing that ever happened was Keith Thurman motivating Manny. If Thurman would have came and, and fist bumped and, and hey, you're my idol, you're my legend, I think he would have done himself a lot better in that fight. <laughs> but you don't want to aggravate the senator because he don't speak a lot of words, but his actions speak very loudly in the ring. And you know, after the fight though, when Manny went back and he had like a scratch on his uh, eye and it was very painful, I mean, literally all night. I mean, I've never seen this guy on his knees and it was just like, the pain of this, uh, uh, however, this little scratch, you know, so, so all night that was bothering. So he really couldn't enjoy, you know, the thrill of victory, even though he did go back to his suite and he had all his pastors there and his family and everything. And they, they prayed on things and they thanked the Lord for, for the victory and for everything he had delivered. And um, it was just, like I said, it was just amazing to be part of it because you know, it's history. That's the end, end of the story. I don't think anybody at 40 will, well, no one's going to ever accomplish what he accomplished his whole career. But to win that Walter title against a legit, a guy that had an O, not a one loss, not two losses, was undefeated. You can say whatever they want about Keith. To finish Manny's career out of that was amazing. And like a lot of people say, you should walk away on the top. And on, But he would have walked away on the top if it wasn't for coronavirus, because coming off of that fight, we had a deal to fight in Saudi Arabia against Mikey Garcia. That's a fight that that is another one that's the perfect fight for him. So the senator, I, I don't think the senator ever thought about walking away. The senator walked away from boxing after Ugas because he's running for president of the Philippines. He was offered Amir Khan and Amir Khan was done after the Ugas fight. It was done for December, January. And unfortunately, Again, if you're going to run for president, you have to commit 100%. So at that point is when, you know, yeah, he was advised by his people and stuff, it is time to hang it up. He, but he had never, he's never in his career, you know, when he got knocked out by Marquez, when he lost to Mayweather, when he lost to Horn, when he, the guy's a fighter, that's what he does. And the guy never, never thought about walking away, except, of course, when he was called for a higher, you know, a higher, a little higher position. <laughs> On August 21st, 2021, Two years after his win over Thurman, Pacquiao entered the ring again against Ordenis Ugas. But his 42-year-old legs no longer had the spring and energy that had propelled him to so many victories, and he suffered a unanimous decision defeat. The following month, with his focus now on his campaign to be president of the Philippines, he announced his retirement from professional boxing, with a record of 62, 8 and 2, with 39 knockouts. He will be eligible for election to the International Boxing Hall of Fame in 2024. That concludes our two-part look at the career of Manny Pacquiao. Many thanks to all our contributors, and many thanks to you for listening to this special edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney.